HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by 100 Bogart Street. Do you need a conference room for your next meeting? Learn more by visiting 100bogart.com. Hey, this is Hannah Forden. I'm the program manager here at Heritage Radio Network. This year, we're celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary, and I want to thank all of our listeners and members for being a part of an incredible year of food radio. We never would have made it this far without all of you. So HRN is now in its summer fun drive, and this is when we turn to you and ask that you make a donation to help ensure a bright future for food radio. Whether you listen to one show or 20, there's a reason why you keep tuning in week after week. All of our content is powered by a small nonprofit, and we rely on your generosity to keep going. Help us keep broadcasting the most thought-provoking, entertaining, and educational conversations happening in the world of food and beverage. So become a member today. To celebrate our 10th anniversary, we have some brand new member gifts available online, so I encourage you to snag your new favorite pizza-themed t-shirt or enamel pin today and show the world how much you love HRN. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate so you can snag your 10th anniversary member swag. And thank you. Hey, and welcome to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkell. And on today's episode, Lazarus Lynch may have started son of a Southern chef as a living relic to his late father's fish fry restaurant in Queens, but somehow it morphed into a fabulous modern soul food Bible. The product of Alabama roots and a Guyanese mom, Lynch is an amalgam of his upbringing, yet a character all his own. A graduate of New York City's Food and Finance High School, Lynch took his culinary comprehension to create an awareness that reaches reaches far past food. It goes into fashion, music, the queer community. That said, his strong presence on screen, you can see him in Food Network's Comfort Nation, and as a social media dynamo, delivers a common message, and that's make it gravy, which is truly all-encompassing, like Lynch himself. Welcome to the food scene. Thank you so much. I think let's start at the epicenter of your life, which is Queens. Mm -hmm. And talk to me uh, um, what it was like growing up there in, in two different subsets. One, your family, your father from Alabama, your mom from Guyana. Um, 
but also the diversity that surrounds that borough. Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm so excited to be talking to you today. And um, I, I, always, I always love to think about home, which is Queens, because it always has felt like a place that understood me. Uh, in a way that maybe no other part of the world does because Queens is super diverse and that is an understatement. (laughs) It's a gumbo, it's a salad bowl, it's all of that in one. And that was my family. My family was also like this gumbo salad bowl with my mother being from Guyana, raised there for 13 years and then, uh, you know, sent over to England to continue the rest of her education with her family and just literally, you know, plopped into London and said, okay, keep on with life. And, um, and then my father from Alabama moving up to New York when he was six years old. So when I was born back in the nineties, you know, growing up in Queens was sort of like, we played outside, we took the bus to school. That's the yellow school bus. Um, we would go on trips to the museums and we were at the Statue of Liberty on a Saturday and then we'd be in church on a Sunday all day long. Um, and that was, that was just growing up, you know? And so, I, I've always been surrounded by the arts. I've always been surrounded by culture. Um, I was really close to Jamaica Avenue, which is a very popular area in Jamaica, Queens, where I lived. And there was an arts school there where I would go. And, you know, I would play drums there and, and I would paint and draw. So my, my childhood was always artistic. It was always artistically forward. And actually, you and I were having this conversation before we started talking uh, about athletics and you know what boys did back then and I think that it was really particular for me in my household it was like either you're going to play sports or you're going to be a dancer or you're going to be at art school um and very rarely did all of those paths you know cross on top of each other yeah I, I want to talk about music though because mm-hmm. it's been such a, a thread and trope throughout your life in a lot of different ways and uh, maybe it's a weird preconception maybe it's fortunate or not but Queens has an association with music because of rappers like Nas, 50 Cent, LL Cool J, but you grew up in the church. What's the difference between those two disciplines of music and the kind of music that you play today? I don't think there's any difference. You know, I think music is a language in itself. Uh, there's, a, there's a line in a Stevie Wonder song that talks about that, but it, it's, a, it's a language that everyone and anyone can understand. Um, and so I think for me, growing up in the church, it was an opportunity to learn how to master that gift. First of all, to acknowledge that I had that gift and then for it to be nurtured. You know, I had, I had people around me who were not trained by the books uh, to sing or to play an instrument. They learned by ear. They just learned by feel. And that's what they gave to me. And so, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's all the same. It's interesting though. Now I, I visit a church where L.O. Cool J often visits because he still is around in Queens and I'll see him, you know, occasionally. Um, and so, and, and also James Brown, the singer lived right around the corner from my father's business. Um, he had a home there in St. Albans, Queens. And then L.O. Cool J's, uh, grandmother and 50 cents grandmother also shopped in my father's store and they were just neighbors. They, it, it was nothing. So, it, it was always around me. And that's, I think, one of the perks of being in New York City is that you're constantly surrounded by people who are pushing culture forward um, and they live in your backyard. You said something really interesting, and it was by ear, that you were surrounded by people who learned how to play music in, in an untraditional manner. And 
I see all those parallels with how your father learned how to cook. Sure. Because you say in your cookbooks on the Southern Chef that your dad never really had cookbooks or written recipes to go after. Uh, it, it was, you know, stories from generation to generation to generation. Um, why did you feel that it was so important at the time that you did to record those things mm. so your father's legacy could be carried on? Yeah, it's interesting. I wish I knew the answer to that. I mean, I, I think that there was just something, it was like a premonition. I, I just knew that I needed to sit down with my dad late 2014, I should say early 2014, and talk to him about his life. My father and I had grown closer together when I was around 12 years old. You know, we were very close anyway through music, but then when food entered the scene and he opened his restaurant and I was I was really young, that's where we started to bond in the kitchen. And so, you know, many years later, gone to food and finance high school, as you mentioned, went into college and I thought, there's something I want to do. There's something I want to say. I'm not sure what that is, um, but I feel like there's, there's something more to the story about my dad and myself. And so I just started to interview him and talk to him about his life and about the recipes that were passed down from his mother and his grandmother to him. And, you know, it was kind of a shocking thing. My father didn't understand the concept of writing a recipe. I mean, he just thought, you know, you put some cabbage and then you use a little bit of sugar and then use a little mayonnaise. And then me having this culinary background and experience, I'm like, well, what's the first ingredient we're putting into the bowl? <laughs> it's not the cabbage. It's not the sugar. It's actually the mayonnaise. Okay, let's let's start there. So being able to relate to him um, in that way right before he passed in January of 2015 was incredibly powerful. And for me, gave me a perspective about who he really was, not just as my dad or as a chef or as a restaurant owner, but as a man. Yeah. Baby Sisters Soul Food. First of all, where does that name come from? And were you one of those kids that walked into your family's restaurant thinking you own the place? Oh, for sure. <laughs> yes. And the name comes from his mother, who was not technically the baby sister, but he referred to her as the baby sister um, and so some people in the family and he named it after her. And so my, my grandmother was a housekeeper. She was a beautician. She was a home cook and that's how she made ends meet. And so my father watched his mother. She was a single mom raise four children by herself and entrepreneurialize her life. Any kind of talent she had, she entrepreneurialized it. Speaking, going back to the music for a second, my dad was part of a small family choir that his mother, he made all the siblings sing together. And then they would go to churches and community events and block parties and perform. So that was my father's life growing up. He was just like, okay, well, we'll we're going to sing and perform. Um, and so that's naturally, I think, been passed down to me and my siblings. I have four brothers and sisters, technically five of us, but uh, we we all grew up singing together and we, we still sing together and harmonize in a second. But, but the restaurant was a place that not only celebrated the food from his mother, but it also celebrated music. So my father was also, <laughs> he wore many hats, okay? He was a carpenter. He built a stage um, in the restaurant where he allowed musicians to come and practice um, there were people that came there just to play cards or hang out or play dominoes. And then on Friday nights, he would turn it, he would turn the restaurant into an open, open mic night where folks would come in and just, you know, jam 
literally just jam and order fish and mac and cheese or whatever. And so that's the world he wanted to create. And that's what he did. So for me, it was like going to the restaurant was fun. It was, oh my goodness, there's this other world happening there. I've always found it's interesting that still to this day, most restaurants have the front of the house and the back of the house. And there is that division, not only in labor, but a physical wall between those spaces. And it seems like your father was so performative, wanted to be on that stage, wanted to be in front of people. Uh, was he that kind of cook as well? He was sort of in the middle house. <laughs> if there's a friend <laughs> in the back house, he's in the middle of the house because he, he loved people. Um, he was not egotistical. He didn't, he wasn't sort of center of attention. It's all about me. He just really loved people. Um, my father would, you know, we're sitting in this restaurant now. My father would talk to everybody by the end of the dinner. He would have known everyone's name. Everyone would have known his name and everyone would have known his kids because that's just the guy he was. He always introduced us to anybody, but you know, with his food, he took it very seriously. Um, he wanted the restaurant to stand out because there was so many soul food restaurants at the time in in the neighborhood. And so he wanted it to stand out. And so he took the food very seriously. Um, but he was also a little critical about his own food. And so he would judge his food a lot. He would say, Oh, this doesn't taste the same or, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not the right flavor or I put a little too much salt today, you know? So he, he also, because he didn't, he wasn't professionally trained. He sort of just instinctively cooked. And so some days it could be a little less salty and the other days it would be, you know, just right. Um, but he was, he was always on this journey of improvement. I wouldn't say perfection, but improvement. Well, like you said before, he's not really working off anything. Whereas your mother comes from a nation which has very specific recipes. You know how a cheese roll is supposed to taste. You know how a pine tart is supposed to taste. You know what salt fish is mm-hmm. supposed to taste like. Uh, when you're going off of this... I don't know, this this vision of what a fish fry should be. Is there any perfect recipe for that? Well, I think yes and no. I think he had for sure an education from his mother and from growing up in Alabama and from visiting the South as a kid when he, you know, as he grew up, um, you know, going to barbecues in North Carolina, you know, uh, sitting in the in the back, the back uh, pickup trucks outside of a church on a weekend um, and then frying fish and selling banana pudding. So that was his his education, um, as far as as far as I'm concerned with him. And I think that did inform the flavors that he created. I think it did inform in many ways, you know, how he could curate an experience for people. You know, I say in the book that a fish fry, like black people do fish fries for everything. You know, they do a fish fry to raise money. They do a fish fry to send someone off to college. It's a celebration, but it's also a way to bring the community together. And I think that's the essence of who my dad was. You know, he lived, he lived that kind of life where he just wanted people to feel wanted and, and, and like they belonged. There were days where growing up in, in Queens where we would have visitors from all around the world just literally in our apartment, laying on the couch, sleeping on the kitchen floor. My dad had a couch that he put into the kitchen, um, which were basically for guests, and we would have to like maneuver ourselves around it to accommodate some person who needed shelter for the night. So that's the kind of person he was. And my mother, you know, she wasn't too far behind him, just following his lead, you know. More than following her lead, uh, his lead, it seems like she was such a backbone to everything that he did, washing dishes at the restaurant after having worked a whole nother shift at uh, a hospital or as a secretary. Yeah. Um, she seemed to support his vision. Well, I mean, I think it was their vision uh, of, of 
being able to have an environment for a family to raise someone like you. And if you asked her, she would not call it sacrifice. She would say that that's what she wanted to do. And that was the right choice for her. And, you know, I, as a kid growing up, that was just what I knew my mom to be. I, I knew her to just be behind my dad in 100 full support of him. But my mother also was the kind of woman that would say, I need a break. I'm going to Egypt for two weeks. You're, you're with the kids. I'm out of here. And like, just go, you know, she would just get up and go. I also say in the book that she was part of the missionary uh, team at the church and she would read 500 plus page novels. So my mother had an appreciation for life and she had an appreciation for travel. Whereas my father never saw a vacation. He never sought one in his mind. It was impossible to have a successful business that you own and also enjoy all of the fruits of your labor. So there was a real disconnect in his mind about what pleasure looked like, how to enjoy life and also how to make ends meet and provide for your family. So for me growing up, I sort of had, the best of both worlds. I saw what it meant to own a business and run a restaurant. And that's why when people ask me now, do I want to own a restaurant? I say, hell no, <laughs> you know, and they don't understand, but because I value time and we don't have a lot of it. And so I've decided I don't want to use my talent, you know, on my back like that. Um, like my father did, you know, but I want to do that through other ways. And the book is just one of the ways that I, I get to do that today. When did you realize that? When did you first realize food was your career, was your biggest passion? Maybe it isn't because you still have music in your life. Um, because you did go to food and finance high school, and that is very formative. But when did the expressive side of all this come out? I actually think it began in high school. Um, I I was really fortunate to sort of get this, this joy feeling in my heart that food was what I loved and I connected with that at such an early age you know I was like 13 or whatever but I was like this is really what I love and going to the high school opened up my eyes to say like wow this is what it means to really be a chef you know we weren't I, you know I tell people all the time food and finance is not an easy bake oven curriculum I mean you are working with professional equipment you are working with real knives i mean it is it is an intense curriculum and then you're also a full-time high school student in new york city um, and all that comes with that and growing up in this crazy city but um I, I i realized very early too that my artistry that culinary was an expression one of the many expressions of my artistry Music is another. Fashion is another. And so I've always been at my core a creative and an artist. But food was really the focus. And then, you know, once I started writing and I had an English teacher who said, you're really good at writing. Um, I had a music teacher who said, you should keep singing. So I had I had mentorship. Um, and that, that also gave me uh, ideas for how else I could go about pursuing my dream to be a chef. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back and talk about My College Kitchen and how that parlayed into so many other online and front-of-camera sensations. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back. This episode was brought to you by 100 Bogart, a new building in Bushwick, Brooklyn, with meeting and event spaces available for on-demand booking. Looking for the next perfect outdoor location for your next gathering? Host your next event at 100 Bogart's impressive rooftop, just steps away from the Morgan L-Stop. 
It's one of the largest and tallest roof spaces in Bushwick, boasting 360-degree views of Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Queens. 100 Bogart's Rooftop is available for your next networking event, fundraiser, special performance, or photo shoot. There's approximately 5,000 square feet, ample space for up to 100 guests. For more information on hosting an event at 100 Bogart's Rooftop, email info at 100bogart.com or call 718-362-3539. Hey, and welcome back to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Lazarus Lynch, son of a Southern chef. Both the name of your website and book that just came out, which is just lovely and we'll get to very shortly. But first, I want to talk about college briefly, because you started a YouTube channel called My College Kitchen. Um, was it because you wanted to be an on-screen talent or you just wanted better food at the university you were attending? Oh, that's an interesting question. I started my college kitchen. I started YouTube actually in 2012, uh, 2010. I got to go back. It's, it's, I think it was 2010. I was a, a sophomore in high school and I remember going to the Food Network as part of like a class trip. Went to the Food Network and my eyes were opened. I had known of Emerald, Rachel Ray, Bobby Flay. I'd known of the Food Network, but I'd never seen it in person. And actually, like, there are people that work there, you know? And so, that's where the idea sort of came to me. I thought, I could do that. I could do what Rachel Ray's doing. I could do what Bobby Flay's doing. I was a sophomore <laughs> in high school. So I did my first video in high school. I posted it on YouTube. Um, no one really watched. I really didn't care. But for me, it was, I, it was an opportunity to prove to myself that I could do that. And is that still online? It is still okay, online. Okay, I will dig it that is up buried. It is buried under many tabs. I listen to my first episode <laughs> every once in a while just to remind myself how far I've gone. Oh, I've, I've come so far um, since that time. My goodness. <laughs> but then fast forwarding to 2012, graduated high school, went into college. 2014, I decided I want to go back to the YouTube thing. Let's go back to that. And so my college kitchen was really, it was actually the way that I was going to graduate because I'd switched majors three times. And by the third major, I landed in individualized studies, which was basically like, let's combine all the classes that you've taken. Let's create a degree out of that and let you, let's yeah, get let's you get the, the hell out of here. here. Yeah. So I, I said, okay, and I need a final project. And I said, okay, I'll just make some videos and I'll use all my you know, video editing classes to help me create that project. And so that's really how it started. I just needed to graduate. And then... I fell in love with the series and the campus received it very well. My friends were receiving it. And then that led to Tastemade discovering me on online. Tastemade uh, is, is a network based in LA, Los Angeles. And so they reached out to me and I was like, oh my God, this is totally not real. This is someone like messing with me. And they were like, no, for real. Like we want you to, we will fly you out. We want you to make some Snapchat videos with us. And so they were like, I remember the first email, they were like, oh, can you send us a couple recipes? And I was just like, uh, okay, <laughs> I, I guess. And so I was literally in my dorm room writing recipes without even testing them, which is a big, big no-no. Okay, having ri- written this book, you do not do that. But I would cross my fingers, I would send it out, and I would hope that they would work because they had an entire culinary team who was there to prep all of my food. So when I got to Los Angeles, you know, everything worked. And every single recipe worked. It was literally angels on my side. <laughs> <laughs> and then the chronology after that was Food Network's Comfort Nation. Yeah. 
And Confirmation is, is kind of a, a diversion. Well, not diversion. It, it's kind of something different than what you had done before because you take yourself out of the spotlight to, to shine it on other people, from farmers to other cooks. Uh, what was the concept for that show? Well, the concept started as... I think I said in the book, I interned at Food Network in my last year of high school. So I had already made the connections there, but they didn't know me as an on talent, you know, on air person. Uh, So when I finally got, when they finally reached out to me, um, the idea was let's come to the table and just talk about you and talk about what you want to do. And let's figure out if there's a, if there's a connection here. And so very naturally, you know, the idea of telling a story about, you know, the heritage of food and, and, you know, painting those stories of recipes being passed down from generation to generation, which is my story as the son of a Southern chef. It was a natural and obvious choice to create a show for me that was about that. So Comfort Nation really celebrated that. Season one was more about me walking into restaurants and talking to, you know, a chef from Japan um, who's making, you know, great sushi. Um, and season, season two was really about, let's get Laz on the road. Let's go through the South. Let him talk to a pit master. Let's go do some barbecue. Let's go do some fried chicken in Mississippi. You know, let's go to the farms. So it was a real, it was, there were two very, it really feels like two very different shows. Um, but that was the genesis of it. And, you know, one of the greatest part of my careers, I, I think it's definitely a highlight. It wasn't hard for me to remove myself um, from the spotlight because I don't even think of myself in the spotlight. When I'm on camera, I really feel that I'm connecting with a person. Um, I'm not as much as it's performance. I don't feel that I'm performing. Um, I'm just connecting with the person. And so it was actually much easier to talk to a person um, you know, next to me and, and talk about a recipe or talk about their story um, than even looking into a camera. I will say that it felt like there was a disconnect between the head notes and the recipes or the head notes and the pictures because the head note was, was so, I don't know, endearingly you. And then the pictures, not knowing you, felt like somebody performing. But now knowing, meeting you, seeing you in the flesh, you are that kind of person. You, you are seemingly unafraid to be in front of people and spread this gospel. Um, I commend you for that because I am so scared to do something like that. Mm. And h- how do you decide to become that kind of figurehead? Um, why is it... Do, do you feel this weight on your back to have to tell these stories, be part of uh, some movement or some community to make sure that other people have a voice as well? Uh... I don't think everyone's ever asked me that. I, I don't feel a pressure. I, I recognize that I have a responsibility because I was just minding my own business one day and 10,000 people decided to start following me and then another 10,000, another 10,000. And so, you know, and then I started to, to wake up and say, okay, there's a lot of neighbors and they've all come to the party. And so what, what am I going to say? What am I going to do with this? And I think it's a great responsibility as my platform continues to grow is to uplift voices, you know, as someone who's part of the LGBTQ community, as someone who cares a lot about people living their authentic lives and, and making sure that they are truly being themselves. You know, that's, that's just something that I've naturally, um, it's naturally become a mission of mine. It's not something that I set out to do one day. Um, and I think that, you know, there, there's, 
There's not a day that goes by where I'm just like, am I not doing the right? Am I doing the right thing? Have I found my lane? Even with the book out, I mean, you'd be surprised. But I'm just as human as anyone else. And so, what I hope to share with people today, and especially through the book, is that you know you could be 100% yourself. You can still have doubts. You can still have questions. Um, but that's what makes us human, and that's what makes us connect. So, um, I always want to celebrate that through my work. And you always have to share a part of yourself, and that's what I think you do so well. Um, you know, in all your ventures, and especially in this book. And I want to start with canned salmon croquettes. Yes. Because I, it was actually the first recipe I opened up to in the book, and uh, I felt like I had met a kindred spirit, because in, in, in college, I used to go to Star Market in Boston and get... Uh, Shout out to Star Market. Star Market. <laughs> and used to get um, canned salmon and make little salmon patties out of it. Really? Um, yeah, it just it just was an accessible thing. Um mm-hmm. I worked in fish for a whole bunch of years after that, but didn't really understand fish. And this was like the most accessible way to get into it. But it was also a budgetary concern. Um, And I also grew up with, you know, people who had utilized canned food. And you don't shy away from it in this book. And I love that. Well, I don't. And I also, I just try to tell the truth. And I try to tell the truth with my life. I try to tell the truth with my writing. I try to tell the truth with the work that I, I, I put out into the world. And, you know, my father, we weren't rich. You know, we, we, we were, we, we got by, but, you know, we weren't rich by any means. And so, you know, this was just something that was such a staple in our house. You know, we had salmon croquettes probably once a week. I mean, it was just such a thing. And then my dad put it on the menu at the restaurant and people were like, <laughs> like losing their shit because of it. So it was, you know, it was just one of those recipes that always hits home. It always reminds me of my father, you know, that along with like his macaroni and cheese, his peach cobbler, his collard greens, his coleslaw, um, all of those recipes, you know, truly speak to me. And you have those iterations of your take on those recipes in, the, in this book. But then what, what recipes are truly you? That, that aren't of your father, aren't of your heritage, um, that, that have come out of your own head from the ether somewhere. My sriracha honey wings, you know, I spent some time living in China when I was uh, a junior in high school. I'd gone with the World Food Prize to study abroad and just fell in love with Asian flavors. And then through college, worked at a Japanese place called Sato and, and started to experiment with rice wine vinegars and sesame oils. And um, so, and hence, you know, the sesame sriracha wings, um, also the sesame, uh, my pork burgers with um, a spi- hot and spicy cabbage slaw. Um, the the Dr. Dr. Pepper ribs, Dr. too, Pepper have ribs, a whole bunch of sesame oil as well. A lot of sesame oil. So there's, you know, there's, I always, I say this too, that this book will push you out of your comfort zone if you are someone who's very acquainted with soul food or Caribbean food that you, you know, there'll, there'll be a couple of recipes that push the limit a little bit. There's my other recipe, my Bama mud pie mousse, which is delicious. It's a chocolate crusted pie with a chocolate mousse filling. Um, and then it's topped with, you know, whipped cream and pecans and toffee. It, it's just really good. Yeah. 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 Looking through all these recipes, too, you, you had a lot of different points of entry, you know, from your father's side, from the fish fry, from your mother's side, um, but then a bodega. And, and I love that you celebrate the humble egg and cheese sandwich or mm. the egg and scramble on a biscuit from a bodega. How was that a formative part of your life? Well, bodegas were part of my my upbringing. You know, my father's first store on Linden Boulevard in Farmers was surrounded by delis on each corner. And my father had really good relationships with the owners. So we would go in there, we would, 
you know, do our grocery shopping. We'd buy milk there. We buy cat food because I grew up with three cats. It's another story, <laughs> you know. So for our pet show, yeah, yeah, not my siblings, next, yeah. actual pets. But yeah, they. So that was always part of my life. And you know, when I think about New York, you can go to Florida. You're not going to find a bodega. You know, you're not going to find like a New York City deli. But you know, and I joke about it in the book. You know, a New York City bodega usually has like you know, a cat roaming around, you know, there's like crates just hanging out. There's like a back door that probably is open, you know, that leads to some alley. And the spirit of that, the spirit of, of the grit, um, and the, the humility of that, um, for me really shaped who I was. And it also shaped my palate, you know, because that was my breakfast. It was bacon, egg and cheese on a roll, or I'm ashamed to say, but not ashamed, uh, a honey bun, you know, warmed up in the microwave, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, just, I would never do that today. <laughs> just, now I'm on my like kale smoothie with apples and all that stuff. But, but yeah, I, I wanted to celebrate that again. You know, I thought with the book, I don't want to shy away from how much butter we used or how much, you know, was in this. I really want to celebrate and tell the story. One of my favorite stories actually was when you used to take money from your dad's cash register to run across the street and get Jamaican beef patties. Yes. But the recipe in the book is a chicken curry beef patty. So talk to me about, one, that story, and two, why you decided to stuff it with something else. Well, so I grew up, again, in Jamaica, Queens, and we were surrounded by Jamaican restaurants. I also had many Jamaican family members and friends. Uh, So it was always part of my life. Jamaican beef patties are one of those things where it's like, Jamaicans don't consider it Jamaican food. It's like this snack thing that Americans have sort of reinterpreted and reimagined. And so, you know, I, I, but I would, I would go into the, after school, go into my dad's restaurant, go into the cash register without his permission <laughs> and just like take a dollar seventy five, run around the corner and get that beef patty. Um, so what a beef patty is, is it's this crusted, it's, it's a flaky dough and it's filled with ground beef or mince, as in my mother's side of the family would say, some minced meat. Um, and it's flavored with onions and spices like, you know, turmeric and uh, or turmeric and cumin and coriander, all of that. So, but they also have jerk chicken patties. They have chicken patties. They have vegetarian patties and tofu patties and the list goes on. So again, thinking about what are those things that I grew up eating? What were those, those items of food that really shaped my childhood? If I could, if I could create a story with 10 recipes, what would those be? And the chicken patties just belong there. So I thought, you know, beef is kind of, you know, it's a, it, it's a lot sometimes beef. You don't want that, but I, I like to do chicken. I use ground chicken or you can use ground Turkey. You can certainly use ground beef for the recipe. Um, and then I use some, you know, pastry puff pastry, cut them out into rounds and then seal them and bake them. And they're delicious. And they sound a little easier to eat because I feel like there's a technique to how you eat a Jamaican beef patty without getting it all over yourself. I, what, I haven't learned yeah. the technique yet. <laughs> yeah. It's like when it's too piping hot, you have to take a little bit and then suck a little bit out and take a little bit and suck a little bit out. But yeah, yeah I, you've practiced. I've, I've, I have not practiced. My favorite place <laughs> closed a handful of years ago and I'm out of practice and only now getting mm. back into the role of things. But those other, you mentioned those recipes that define your life. Talk to me about jerk chicken, um, especially a place on Springfield Boulevard called St. Best Jerk Spot. Yes. So, uh, the jerk, the jerk spot there on, uh, Springfield, Springfield Boulevard is one of the most iconic. You can smell it 10 blocks away. You smell those, uh, those ovens going and you smell the the grills going. Um, jerk chicken was part of, it was like a Sunday thing, you know, it wasn't something that was 
at the house a lot or during the week. It was really like if I went to the church, New Jerusalem, which was a Jamaican church and they would sell jerk chicken after church in the basement. And that's when I would have jerk chicken. It was always spicier than I could handle as a kid. So I've always shied away from it, but I loved the flavor of the allspice and the scotch bonnet and the thyme and all those flavors coming together. And so I, I just, I, I felt like, yes, jerk chicken needs to be in the book. And, um, you know, I think I do it in the book. I think I have one that's for the grill. Then I have another one that's for, you know, if you're at home, you don't have access to a grill, you can make it in your oven. Um, but now I jerk things all the time, you know, and I, and I love jerk. And I also have a coconut jerk corn, you know, grilled on the, on the grill. And you sprinkle it with some coconut flakes and some of my dry jerk seasoning, which is in the book. So it's it it all celebrates that. It all celebrates, you know, who I am. I mean, if these recipes don't sound mouthwatering enough, you got to <laughs> check out the book for the visuals because uh first of all, I'm blown away by the photos and a big shout out to your photographer, uh, Anisha C. Sodia. Yes. Um the fashion, the outfits, that Grace Jones shirt that you have on, uh the nails, the hair. Talk to me about how that is a curated part of your package or do you even think twice about what you wear when you wake up? Well, it's interesting. I have a team of of good friends who are super talented. They're into fashion. They're into music. They're into photography. And um, I, I just, I said, hey, I'm, I'm working on this book. You guys want to help? <laughs> and they're like, sure. So my my friend, brother, stylist, now stylist, uh, Keon Mullins, very connected into the fashion world. Uh, you know, I said, oh, let you know, whatever you want it to be. And I'm sort of a blank canvas, you know, so ordinarily when I wake up, I'm just like, I throw in some sweatpants, I'll throw in some basketball shorts and a t-shirt or not, and I'm fine, you know, but with this book, it was really, really collaborative in the way that, you know, everyone brought to the table something special. And I was just the blank canvas that said, sure, I'll dress up, I'll put on a wig, I'll do whatever, you know, so, and that's, that's actually how, who I am, you know, that, that really is who I am. But I, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we, we thought about it in the sense, like, how can we be different or make a statement? I think we were, I'm just being who I am, you know, I'm just living my truth. And, you know, I'm supported by that, you know, and I think this is the other key here is that when you truly live your truth, that you will be supported by other people who will support you in living that truth or in carrying out whatever that vision is that you have of yourself. But I think it starts with you being, you know, the, the first partaker and saying, I'm going to, I'm going to show up fully. Um, and so if anything, they encourage me to be more of who I am. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It, it's so nice to have a community that supports you like that. And on that note, do you consider this a cookbook or do you consider this a queer cookbook? <laughs> I don't know what I consider it anymore. I mean, someone said it was a soul food Bible one day, and then they slapped that on the back of the book, and I said, okay, I guess it's a Bible now. So um, I, here's what I say. It's a cookbook, but it's more than a cookbook. Um, it's a space for you to reflect. You know, I have quotes in here, original quotes that, you know, I've just been inspired to write, and, you know, everything from compassion to forgiveness to self-love to gratitude i mean all of those themes are echoed in the pages of the book so you know it, it's a lifestyle book it's a it's a guide it's it's a it's an offering you know that's what it really is and so i felt like it was always inside of me to write it you know i'm now working on book number 2 which is totally next level and i'm excited about that but but yeah i, I want people to cook from it you know just look through it if they're 
you know, if they're bored and they just have time to kill, I just want, I want it to be a place for people to meet me. And what does the mantra make it gravy mean to you? I have no idea. <laughs> Next question. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I said it one day. I don't know if I was at a meeting or bored. I don't know what was going on. And I just said it one day and then I, I, I hashtagged one of my photos that, and it just felt right. And so, yeah, there, I wish I was a little bit more articulate or smart about that. I, no, I think you are. The subconscious does wonderful things. And I've listened to your R&B single in my world many, many a times. I've added to the, I think well, it's, it's like nearly a quarter million clicks through Spotify. Um, and there's a lyric that says, there are some things that words just can't explain. And I think we don't need to explain anymore because it is the music. It is what you cook, what you eat, how you dress. It is Lazarus Lynch. Thank you. Well, thanks for being on the food scene. Um, and a big thank you to 100 Bogart, our sponsor, Music by Cookies and Matt Patterson Engineering. Hope to have you listening to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.